understand we've all felt stuck at one point or another, even the most successful people among us, because it's a rite of passage, a trial, to see if you have what it takes to be independent. The test is to prove that you deserve your destiny. Each week our goal is to bring you an inspiring story of someone who moved beyond their stranded face and found greatness on the other side. Welcome to The Stranded Podcast, and this is your host, Jessica Hurley. Welcome back to another episode of The Stranded Podcast. I can't thank you guys enough for joining me on this journey. And another person I can't thank enough is my amazing, amazing guest today, who is the author of the book, My Own Worst Enemy, a black man's American story. And I have to be truly honest and address the elephant in the room. As a white woman, uh, this was very different for me to read because just truly stated, I was afraid I might read it and not be able to uh, relate. You know, and even a book titled like that makes you think that this is for a very specific audience. And so to the contrary, I am so deep in this book right now. It is so amazing. I strongly encourage anyone to read it. Uh, Not only do I feel like I'm walking with him in every moment of his life that he's describing, but I also would say that I think every, uh, not only every African-American male, but every man should read this book just to understand um, some of the moments in life that you're discussing that just blew me away um, about being triumphant and understanding things in life now. So I'm so happy and excited to welcome our guest today, Ishmael Brown. Thank you. I'm super excited to be here. I just, I can't wait to dive into my life with someone who has read the book and done their research. And like you said, my story supersedes the racial barriers. It's something that anyone who has encountered struggle can relate to. Like, granted, the title, like you said, it speaks directly to a specific audience, but it really speaks to individuals who have been through the trials and tribulations of life. So I'm just I'm more than thankful for the opportunity to speak to your audience and just shed some light on a lot of things that people deal with, but too afraid to tap into and to have that conversation. And that's what's so crazy about this book. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I, I so you send it full disclosure because we're all about vulnerability here right um you send me, <laughs> yes you send me the book via email and as soon as I open it the pdf it says 214 pages and I'm like oh oh I don't have time for this like <laughs> <laughs> this is gonna be a problem and um so I just start reading it and I'm like I skip the forward of course because I'm a brat and then I'm getting into chapter one and I'm like oh my God, I need three days to just dive into this. And my inner fears, inner me is I'm literally screaming inside like, Ishmael, be quiet because you are being so vulnerable in this book. Like you're telling every inch of you. The first 25 pages, I'm like, oh my God. And, And you spend it literally dismantling everything you know about manhood in America, you know, as a, and then as a black male. And then you even go on to talk about, regardless of those things, all the things that you were taught to believe that you were wrong. Mm-hmm. I just, I want to know what on earth happened in your life, you know, as an older adult, 
that made you want to spill the beans about everything? What made you really step into your truest self and then say, I'm going to write a book about it? I'll never forget. I was an undergrad. This had to be my junior year. I just completed the test. It was over the summer. And it, UCF, we had these testing labs and we get our grades back immediately. I did well, you know, nothing to be down about. But as I started walking from the testing lab to the guest parking lot, I just started breaking down into tears. And I was just like, what's going on? But at that moment, I realized I had to figure out these issues that I had been combating and trying to suppress for, for decades. And I grew up with that mindset of titanism and fed into that false idea of being strong, not feeling emotions, not articulating emotions. But in that moment, I knew it was too late because I was imploding. And then when I took the opportunity to sit and think about the relationships around me, I was exploding on those who genuinely loved and cared for me. And I just reached my wits end. I couldn't do it anymore. Oh, my God. You said that in your book. And I thought about like 30 men that I've dated. You said (laughs) (laughs) you said that um, one of your biggest fears was the people that professed their love to you the most because this part was what freaked me out. Because it carried weight and responsibility. Right. I just didn't feel like I had anything to give or that I couldn't reciprocate what they were putting into me. And so I I took that very seriously. I felt as if it was a great responsibility being laid on my shoulders in which I couldn't return the favor. Because I, in, in the essence of it all, I didn't love myself and I was empty there. So how could I give something I don't have for my own self? That's so crazy. And I I questioned their ideology, like, how could you fall in love with something so bleak? Wow. Just like, I guess this is just a woman's point of view, but I like, like you, if you came to me and were just like, any stranger could come to me and be like, I'm sad. And I would be like, oh my God, let me love you. Like, I'll love a complete stranger. I will love everybody around me. I'll love anyone I'm in a relationship, you know, just... I'm Mm -hmm. such a lover. And to hear someone say that I was scared of the responsibility to love and I didn't feel like I had the capacity to return it. That's so scary to me. But here's the issue back in that particular time frame of my life. I wasn't able to articulate that very facet. I would just give the facade of I'm fine. Everything's okay," and gave them something to love. So I was misleading them. And through that journey, you know, I lost a lot of great women and I really did a lot of great women wrong. In a lot of tarnished relationships. Right. Wow. Oh, my God. This is like there's going to be somebody listening to there's going to be plenty of people listening to this. And like, oh, that's my man. <laughs> that's, my, that's my ex. <laughs> oh, man, that's going to be crazy. <laughs> and. Something else. Well, we're going to keep going through this book because it just blew me away. But there was a point where you talk about you're basically talking about all the things wrong in your life. Like, you know, your father abandoned your family. You were raised by a single mother with your sister. You talk about oppression and white privilege, which is very real and how they all play a factor in your life and the way that you were raised. But then you go on to say that there was a point in your life where you realized that there was no one to blame, regardless of all these things, for your shortcomings but yourself. 
Right. Do- because you can't change the actions of others, no matter how much you think you're influencing them, you're communicating to them, hey, this is impacting me and the development of my growth and who I am as an adult, who I am as a man. That doesn't matter. Only thing that you can control are your own actions and your mindset approaching life. You have to shift the paradigm of your thinking. And at that point, I realized, you know what? I'm accepting full ownership of where my life goes on from here on out. I can't continue to be fixated on all of these uh, variables or these uncontrollable factors that have, yes, influenced me, my way of thinking, um, where I am in life. I can't. I have to be at peace with that and be like, you know what? Those facets are what they are. But the essence of Ishmael, I can work on and I can change and I can learn how to maneuver around those different entities. Do you know how many people will be 45 before they make that paradigm shift <laughs> that you're talking about? Yeah, you're right. And, and I have that discussion with my mom pretty frequently. And she tells me all the time, she was like, son, you're extremely self-aware now. But you also have to be mindful that everyone is not at that place mentally where you are. So you can't get frustrated because they're not on the same point in their growth cycle. And I find myself reaching that frustration frequently. Me too. (laughs) But I'm looking at myself like I'm on both sides, you know, not as a female. Like I feel like there's several times in my life where I'm very self-aware and then there's some things that I just it's so hard to take responsibility for and it's almost subconscious, you know? Mm-hmm. And that's why when I read that, I was like, do men ever argue with you? Like men that have read the book, like your homeboys or your friends, do they ever argue with you about that statement? Like, cause mm-hmm. you're basically saying to the, you're basically saying that the, the whole theory of being a product of your, your environment is not true. I won't go as far as saying it's not true. It does impact you without a doubt. I won't take that away. But my my whole argument there with that statement is that, hey, you have to put on your big boy pants and make the appropriate changes for your life to shift. You walking around pointing a finger at everyone and everybody who has done you wrong. You're not going to grow and you're not going to get anywhere. But when it comes to my friends, I, I, I really took a pledge early on in life to surround myself with people who are doing better than me, who have more information about life than I, and people that I would just respect on an intellectual level as well as a life level, because no matter how old you are, your maturity is determined by your level of experience and your willingness to overcome struggle. So with my friends, when they when they read the book and we had the discussion, there was no debate on that particular statement, it was more so of, I wish more men thought like this. Right. And I also got the feedback of, <laughs> I'm just too hard on myself. And, that, and that's something that, you know, I own and I wear it. I'm extremely critical of myself to the point where I can't sleep at night. I miss several meals in a week because I'm sitting nitpicking myself. Wow, so it's to, like being to too hear, self-aware. Right, right, to a detriment. Wow. So it's, it's something that I have to work on in essence of a balance because I'm constantly reminded. And then, again, when I get the feedback and reviews from people who know me, quote-unquote, 
But then when they read the book, it's like, wow, I knew you had an issue with criticizing yourself, but this is on a whole new level. I have to backtrack for a second because you said something like that paradigm shift includes you putting your big boy pants on and regardless of what, you know, how people hurt you or what they do to you, you know, not pointing fingers and moving on. But as soon as you said that, I thought about the beginning of the book, which is like, it's a story about your buildup of resentment. Mm -hmm. Like how I think the difficulty in that paradigm shift for a lot of people is resentment is that once, okay, you know what? Someone screwed me over and I'll put my big boy pants on. I'll be the bigger person and I'll move on. But how do I not carry that on to the next relationship and the next friendship and say, you're probably going to hurt me. You're probably going to do me wrong. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And, and, And I had that mindset. I really judged everyone on the preface of what the last individual did to me. And with me, I had been extremely hurt by family so I felt as if a family could do me that way, a stranger would kill me. Right. And mind you, I have this mindset at the age of 10, 11, 12. So I only grew in that resentment, in that anger, and in that hatred. But again, how could I profess any form of love if I don't love myself? And what's incorporated in that love is a level of forgiveness. I'm too angry with how these family members and these strangers have hurt me. The next person is just a, another facet of them. Wow. So the whole thing that you had the, uh, to adopt to change this was forgiveness. Yes. You think you can forgive everyone? I think there are levels to it, for sure. Um, but I think that's something that's... Uh, an evolving conversation and a discussion within yourself because I I would like to be in a place where I can wholeheartedly say I've forgiven everyone in life. I'm just not there yet. I am a man of God and I do um, practice and I exercise my faith and I'm huge on the principles that are laid out for me within the Bible. And that's one of them, forgiveness. But I also understand that I am human and, you know, I'm not perfect. And I do have continued growth to endure. You say one of your greatest fears is becoming like your father. And there's a million things to be scared of. Why that? Why your father? Because growing up, I had so much disdain for my father and I was very indifferent towards who he was as a man. I placed these high expectations on who he was as a father because of, you know, the lack of what I saw. And I placed this pressure on him not knowing what he was dealing with in his life, in his adulthood, because when I was born, he was 20. And I think back to where I was in life at 20 years old, I wasn't equipped to bring another human being into this world. But being so young, I never took the time to put my mind around what he has going on or to think from his point of view and his perspective. So all the only thing that I have to reference as a strong father figure, Fresh Prince of Bel-Air with Uncle Phil, uh, Bill Cosby at the time, not now, but you know, right. with the Cosby show. Um, yeah, let's make that clip with the Cosby show. Um, that's what I saw 
And that's what I expected when it came to a father. My dad wasn't any of those things. And our relationship was explosive. It was a roller coaster ride. We would go months, sometimes a year at most, without speaking to each other. Wow. And so you feared that you would become that as well? Yes. I didn't want to be anything like him because of that distaste that I have for him. And I just knew within my heart, you know, I am a creation of his. So I know a lot of his mannerism, a lot of, a lot of his um, thought processes, um, you name it, his characteristics, those are within me as well. And it wasn't until I got a little bit older that I had I formulated all these questions as to why do I do certain things? Like I understood it when it came to things that my mother did and she would say, hey, you know, I went through that. At your age, here's how you should deal with it. Here's how you shouldn't deal with it. But there was a whole other side of me that I just didn't know. It's because I didn't know him. Wow. I have to read another quote from your book. And um, it's very ironic timing, but I think it's important that we talk about because today... um, in the news, which this happens all the time, but it was in the news today that a famous fashion designer committed suicide. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, rest, rest in peace to Kate Spade, of course, but you know, we never know what someone's going through. And you said this in the book, and I think you were comparing it or well, talking about the fact of um, growing up without a present father and being a, a black man, feeling like everything rests on your shoulders. And you said you learn to take on more then your little shoulders can beat. You become a ticking time bomb, ready to spread pain. Mm-hmm. And you could have meant a lot of things by this. But what how it hit me was in the last two weeks, I've had conversations with multiple males, um, African-American to be specific, that said, that told me true stories about how as teenagers they attempted suicide. Mm-hmm. And with that today, and then reading that quote, and you talk about, um, you talk about suicide in this book and, you know, considering attempts and are we missing a big topic here, especially in that community about mental health issues? Oh, without a doubt. Um, the African-American community does not do enough in regards to having the conversation and forwarding the conversation on mental health. Um, we're very big on praying for problems to go away. However, God always told us to utilize wisdom and there are certain things that need to be discussed so we can get to a place of mental stability. But when you're entrenched in so much trauma, it it weighs on you very heavily to the point where you're not sleeping, you're not eating, you're, you're disengaged in social settings, you're, you're in the dark alone frequently. And that's where I was for a extended period of time. I've battled depression. Um, I've considered suicide. I've even attempted suicide. And I've had addiction problems with controlled substances because of the trauma that I was dealing with. Instead of getting it out, I was trying to self-medicate to make it go away. Yeah, you talked about your grandfather, too, um, you know, dying from alcoholism. 
and you were questioning, wondering, the older you became, you were wondering what he was suppressing. Right. And then... And, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I was going to say, and then it's ironic, and I'm only... I'm not saying this in a degrading way because I found myself as an adult doing things my parents did, but, and then you find yourself dealing with the same thing. Exactly. And that, and that stung me so bad because with my grandfather dying, I didn't view it as, you know, he's sick. You know, that's just what happens. I really took it personally. Like he left me, he left me here on this earth without lessons, without guidance, without any form a fatherhood, he left me because I was just so selfish in my thinking because I'm viewing it as if all you have to do is just stop drinking. How hard could it be? But fast forward to when I step into my various addictions, dealing with cough syrup, promethazine, codeine, um, then at another point in life, pills. I couldn't just stop. Because the pain was still there. So I became the biggest hypocrite ever. And then when I realized that, I felt ashamed. Like, how can I blame this man for what he's dealing with? For I will never know, but I'm sitting here doing the same thing. How could he smile down on me and tell me he's proud of me? When I'm following in his footsteps, making the same mistakes. That's deep. <laughs> it's a... Uh... I remember being in high school and a, a psychology teacher saying you'll either fight tooth and nail to not be anything like your parents or you'll inadvertently end up being just like them. Yep. And that is a harsh reality to see something in your family that you despise and then finding yourself being a repeat offender. Mm-hmm. That's crazy. I'm going to read another quote because, again, I was clearly obsessed with some of the ways <laughs> the ways that you worded things in here, I was like, oh, my God, everyone needs to hear this. You're in a point where you're talking about um, just some of the the impact that people won't acknowledge um, what happens when there isn't a pre- present father in the house. And you talk about what the effect it has on someone's love life. And I know mm. we talked about that earlier, but I want to read this quote. You said, love is a mystery. Because no man ever actively demonstrated to you how to love unconditionally. And again, I read that and I'm like, 30 of my exes. Absolutely. (laughs) (laughs) And then you even go into examples like things like and I and I as I read it, I'm going, this is exactly what so many men struggle with. You said things like when to let go or keep fighting is something you don't understand. You don't understand how you can't love others because you can't love yourself first Mm -hmm. and you don't learn how to deal with heartbreak. And I was like, Oh my God, this is so vulnerable coming from a man because this is like every, every man I know's issue. (laughs) Mm -hmm. That's also a discussion that's never had an essence of heartbreak. When you think about it, well, I can give you my personal experience as a male, when you have these discussions with your other male friends and you tell them, oh, man, she hurt me. She did this. She broke my heart. And it doesn't have to be that she cheated. That We're not demeaning her at all, but just she broke my heart. Man, you're going to be all right. Get over her. You know, it's plenty out here. But it's not that simple. When you deeply care for someone, 
and you break that companionship because that's the essence of what you're missing the companionship because that person becomes your best friend that you can tell them you know your insecurities you can discuss some of your trauma when you decide to let her in and it's like that doesn't exist anymore now a piece of you is leaving because she knows more about you than a lot of your friends a lot of your family members because you, you put your trust in her so now you're thinking about all those other people who have hurt you in your past and it's like you're reliving a rerun of an episode like I've been here before I've been abandoned I've been hurt she ain't no different than those people and now you have a disdain Towards women, that's you don't trust. You don't trust them. Listen, that was so deep because, whoo! Yeah, have you ever heard of the the Mask of Masculinity by Lewis Howes? Mm-mm, never. Oh my God, read it. It talks about all the men, all the masks that men wear, and it goes into detail about them and how they can never love anyone or be in a relationship or be the the best version of themselves until they unmask themselves. Mm. Um, but one of the, the the biggest riveting things that he says in the book is that one of the reasons men have all these issues is because they have the same issues that everyone has. But girls, we're, we welcome vulnerability. We have mm-hmm. girl groups where we whine and dine and uh, talk shit to no end of our problems and how hurt we are and how sad we are. And our girls say, oh, girl's going to be fine. You got this. I know you're hurting. It's okay. And I know why. And you deserve to hurt. Men don't have this. Mm-mm. It doesn't exist. You guys are given the avenue to have the discussions. We're not. You got to think about it. Again, society tells us, especially as black males, you're going to end up in prison. You got to be hard. Um, the only way to make it out of a rough neighborhood is to be an entertainer of some form. So the options of what we're fed and what's placed into us optically and audio through audio is that, hey, you got to be strong out here. Life ain't going to give you nothing. Nobody's going to give you anything. So where is the point of or at what point are we ever encouraged to have the conversation except for when we're adults and we don't know how to communicate, especially when it comes to emotions or express any level of emotional intelligence. So we're in essence, we really learn these tools and the skill set in our twenties after a couple of bad relationships. Wow. And, oh, oh, I've been wanting to say this forever. I read this quote the other day, and now you're making me think of that when you say all these bad relationships. But it said, oh, it was so, it, listen, (laughs) this girl said, she said, when is everyone going to take notice that there are hundreds of women out there that are just becoming collateral damage to our men that need to grow up? And I was like, Oh my God. Because to me, that was like, do you, like you just said, the only way men can learn to have successful relationships is through tried and tried and tried again relationships. Mm-hmm. So you have women that are becoming collateral damage to men that have to learn things the hard way because 
for whatever reason they weren't taught. But here's my thing about that. I feel as if that can go on either side because the basis of this is how you were brought up, your upbringing. Because I've met women as well who were raised not to express their emotions. And yeah. in a relationship, they're emotionally unavailable. Right. So you have you have two people who have zero emotional intelligence just knocking heads. And it's not good for either party. So I really think that's premised on your upbringing. Yeah. That was going to be one of my questions. And I know it's more scientific and would probably require some research. But do you think relationships are more successful when men have present fathers or when women have present fathers versus those without? Oh, that's a great question because I feel as if a a father or a positive male role model in either gender's life, lives, excuse me, has a very significant impact, yet a different impact. From my experience with either dating or having, um, female friends who did not have that type of role model in their life, they had to go through a great deal of relationships trying to discover how they should be loved, trying to define what it means for them to be loved. They weren't showed by a father figure or a positive male role model in the household. So there's a lot of promiscuous actions there. And they're basically just taking whatever these particular partners are giving them. So with each relationship, they're piecing it together. On the male perspective, like we have our mothers, we have our grandmothers, and we love them to death. And, you know, the theory has always been, or the saying has always been, you treat your girlfriend like you treat your mom and your sister. That's not true at all. You, you would think that's the case. Because, I really you know, did. I'm like, wait, what? <laughs> for me, I'll speak for me. Through the course of a lot of my relationships, you know, and I was raised by my mother. I have a younger sister who I love dearly, and I hold them both in a high regard. I disrespected women frequently, whether it was through cheating, whether it was through um, just lying frequently. Um, and I wasn't there in the emotional capacity. I didn't lie to my mom and my sister. I loved both of them. I would do anything for them. But when it came to the women that I dated, I was selfish. I never put them first. It was always about what I wanted. So those are two different parallels there. So I don't don't think that's necessarily true. But you know what's so crazy about all that is it's (laughs) really people thought, I don't mean to say that, I hope I'm not saying this in a way that is degrading, but people whose fathers are not present really in relationships, they're just craving the deepest type of love that you're almost Mm -hmm. craving a replacement, but in the reverse, you really end up chasing it away. Yes. Yes. You are searching to fill that void. Right. And in searching, like you said, you're, you're just damaging because you're damaged internally and you're incomplete. So all you're doing is cycling that hurt and that pain onto someone else. Now they got to go and take this baggage into another relationship. And what that does is that creates self-doubt for them because they're questioning, 
Why doesn't he see my value? Why did he treat me this way? Did I deserve that? She's doubting herself. And that same thing holds true for men as well. I've been in a relationship where, well, several relationships, should I say, where I didn't necessarily feel as if I was being valued. Because certain things were said to me and certain things were done to me that I didn't necessarily agree with. But then I had to take a step back and understand where those women were coming from and what they were dealing with. They had a lot of trauma from their upbringing and from previous relationships. And they were inflicting that pain upon me. Does that make it easier to deal with? or Because I, I just keep going. I keep thinking of when you said trying to understand when to keep fighting or let go. And when you know someone's treating you a certain way based off a of trauma, how do you... How do you make that decision when you take that step back and you can see where it's coming from? When I say that's one of the greatest mysteries of life, when <laughs> to stay and when to let go. Like, <laughs> you know, I think all of us have access, asked ourselves that question a million times per person that we've dated. Man, should I stay? Should I let this go? You never know. And I think what we all do is we act on a hunch that we have or, you know, a woman's intuition or whatever you want to call it. And we give it another chance and we roll the dice and we try to figure out ways to make the situation gel and work out. And it's just one of those things where you got to roll the dice. Life is about taking chances and things that are worth having are worth shooting for. Wow. That's so hard. That's so hard. I thought you were going to give us the golden ticket. I was like, yes, please tell me when to fight. When to fight, when to let go. (laughs) Not at all. That's just, you know, like I said, I think we all have had that dilemma in relationships. You know, when should I stay? When should I let go? And it's just, it's, it's hard. It's incredibly hard. But I'll say this, when things are meant to be, they'll be. And I'm not saying that in a philosophical sense. I'm saying that from personal experience. Um, I've been in a relationship where, you know, I was at that point, you know, should I stay, should I leave? And this was years ago. And I took my chances. Like, nah, I'm cool. Left the situation. I want to say it was a few months later, I was like, ah, that may not have been the right choice. Oh, Wow. <laughs> I'm serious and you know I thought about it I was like man dang you know I miss her you know I miss the companionship and you know I think I ran into her maybe eight months after making that decision and you know it was like a brand new start but what it did was it gave her that space and that opportunity to make amends to some of the things of her past that were haunting her and then for me, you know, it made me appreciate her even more and what we had. And we ended up getting back together. Granted, it didn't work out in the grand scheme of things, but that's just an <laughs> example where, <laughs> you know, you make a choice. And again, whatever's going to happen is going to happen. Right. No, you're right. Wow. That's a good way to look at it. That's a very, it makes it a lot more comforting to sometimes let go of those situations because sometimes it's, it's um, not because of other people. It's because of it's for yourself. It's yeah. For the sanity of yourself. Yeah. Whew. 
Okay, so there's a lot of times we've mentioned your traumas. I know all about them because I read this. Um, I've read the first really good parts of this book with some of the things that you dealt with. But can you speak speak briefly to some of the traumatic things in your life that were just um, like looking as an adult now? What are some of the things that just still not necessarily haunt you, but have definitely had an impact on the way that you treat people and the things, the decisions that you make now? Can you give us a brief overview? Absolutely. This is something that I'm currently dealing with because I think a lot of people um, have the perception that since I wrote the book that those situations have come to a complete close. Oh, I'm so glad you said that. Because I was reading all of it and I'm like, does this mean that he's like dealt with all of it and he's healed? (laughs) No, not at all. But it was a therapeutic way of acknowledging, hey, this is what I've been through, this is what I'm working on, and I just got to get it out because I know there's someone else who is dealing with similar situations, and I want to let them know I made it out, or I made it through, you can as well. He, so I'm, I'm giving the world my mistakes and my you know, the consequences of such terrible actions to show that I am human, I'm growing, I'm evolving, I'm not who I once was, and I'm okay with what I've done in the past. Like, I don't have any regrets in life, not one. So, for me, I think it's how I've dealt with relationships in totality, whether romantic, family, friends. I didn't value them growing up, and it was just, you know, people, I didn't really care about them, to be honest. I really had this mindset I can do anything in life on my own all I needed was time but it's not true at all the essence of community is such a big factor in you know our development as human beings we're not made to be alone and the fact that I yearned to be alone was really sad and it was just it was bleak it was you know depressing to say the least like I, I never minded going anywhere by myself taking on projects by myself. So for me, working on relationships is a huge focus of mine currently. And I started therapy for the first time, which I'm extremely proud of in April because I've been running from it for years and it's been a goal of mine each year, but I always moved past it. And I was like, you know what? I got to stop running from it. So in our first session, he tells me, Ishmael, you live a very stressful life. So <laughs> I'm like, what are you talking about? He was like, you're 27 years old, but you're so critical of yourself and so hard on yourself. It's almost as if, you know, you're acting like you're 55, 60. Like, oh, I have to accomplish this before this. You're always looking forward to the next accomplishment. There's no in the moment with you. Not, there's no satisfaction. It's, it's a very stressful experience so I was like yeah you're right you know and he also brought up the fact of one of the overarching issues that I'm dealing with is the essence of value and feeling valued by people and at first I was like man nah I'm straight (laughs) I don't know what you're talking about (laughs) but after talking to him a little bit more, 
it, I realized that was a defense mechanism and he was absolutely right as I've always felt invisible to people I always felt like I, as if I was passed on overlooked and never acknowledged not in the sense of an award or you know hey don't I look great you know or fishing for compliments no not at all but I really felt invisible like no one could see me at all and I, I don't know the root of that issue I'm not sure as to the damage I've done in perpetuating that mindset or you know that type of ideology so that's something we're still unpacking right now that's what I was going to say so what's the answer because I actually my therapist told me the exact same thing just in a different way she said Mm -hmm. something very similar she said that um not necessarily not that but she said that I don't um I don't trust my decisions and not Mm -hmm. necessarily like in a work aspect or you know do I need to go left or do I need to go right or do I you know am I doing the right thing I I have very strict values and morals but it was more um I don't trust my like I don't trust my feelings enough to make decisions Uh so when someone would hurt me or something bad would happen I didn't know how to feel I would internally be hurt but I would go to five different people to tell them the story for them to tell me to validate how I'm supposed to feel and then I would go okay all right well then that's how I feel Mm -hmm. but I could not own being upset or mad at someone because I was like I always thought you're probably tripping Mm -hmm. and it's it's once you meet those things head on it's so hard to be that self-aware and that critical of yourself to go how do I stop doing this moving forward when it's something that I do naturally and it always gets worse before it gets any better oh I'm so glad you said that you might have just saved me (laughs) (laughs) always because i can tell you in my experience i can sit here on this podcast right now and honestly admit i don't feel like i've done anything in life that sounds ludicrous it sounds absolutely um degrading but that's my genuine feeling and that's, you know, that revolves back to what he told me. Like, my life is stressful because I'm constantly, it's like I'm I'm searching for something, but I don't know what it is. And I told him I used to have this fixation with perfection. If it wasn't perfect, it was a waste. And it was that black and white with me. Are you my twin? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. And the, the frustration would build on me so much you could physically see it. And my mom would be, she, she recognized it and she was like, son, you got to relax. You're going to make yourself sick. Because, you know, you know, with these illnesses, it, it really starts in your mind. Right. So I would find myself having these illnesses because of that pressure. And I've gotten better at it. Um, I wouldn't go as far as say I'm still searching for that perfection, but I still have things that I want to achieve and accomplish. Like these goals are very serious to me. And if I don't get them, I feel as if it's complete failure. 
And mind you, you know, I'm, I'm a Christian. I grew up in the church. I read my Bible. And I also have this other side of me that's like, you know, God's plan is God's plan for your life. He's ordering your footsteps, regardless of how you're stressing yourself out to get to point D through Z. So it's like finding that common ground between understanding that God has a plan for my life and having this goal-oriented plan for my own life. Because if I don't find that common ground and I'm constantly chasing my own and never, you know, praying with power and exhibiting faith, not just having it, but actually exhibiting faith and believing in the substance of faith, I'm going to be disappointed my entire life and I'm going to die disappointed. Ooh. You are my twin. (laughs) (laughs) How did Um, we get separated? (laughs) Well, I, I wonder when people are listening to this because... I'm listening to you and I'm like, is this like a late twenties issue maybe for people? Because I'm going through something similar. It's like I get around my friends that want to have fun. And maybe this, maybe I'm being a little dramatic in comparison to what you said, but I'll get around my friends that want to have fun and kick back. And I feel like I'm sitting at the edge of my seat and I'm wasting time. Oh my God. I'm like, why do you, why does everyone want to play? Why do you guys want to play? Like I've got a million things on my mind that, I should be using this time to get done because I have goals. Y'all, I got goals. What's wrong with y'all? You know, and and I've even, I've even like found myself going, what's wrong with you? Like you need a balance. That's normal. You would be super unhappy if you were just working on this all the time. But I really find happiness working on my goals. And part of me, like you said, that, that part of God's plan is being patient and in prayer. But part of me will sit there and say, you've played enough. I've played enough. Like I've had enough fun. I've, I've traveled the world. I've done all the fun things. I've gone out to no end to the extent of, I don't ever want to see the inside of anyone else's club. Like, and I'm like, I just want to grind. Cause I got goals, you know, and it's almost like an anxiety. All the it time. is. No, it isn't. That's exactly what it is. It's a type of hypomania. Like I realized with myself, even in writing my book, I went through a manic stage I didn't sleep for three weeks straight. What? When with my book, I gave myself a due date and my roommate at the time, we were staying in a um, town home in Alexandria. And this was during the winter months. This is my first winter. It sucks. I'm homesick. I'm heartbreaking from heartbroken from a previous relationship. But I channel all my energy into finishing this book. I had lost 40 pounds in three months in extremely unhealthy fashion and nothing was going to stop me from completing that book. And my roommate, he would get up in the mornings at like 5 a.m. He he was just an early riser and I would be in the basement writing. The walls were covered in outlines and different pages that I hand wrote, um, pages that I typed up and then I would go take them on the wall and then scratch certain things out. Oh no, keep this, redo this. And it was a sickness. You know, everyone wants to see the glory of the praise that you're getting for writing this book, but I'm so glad you shared that because 
that's the hard work and the discipline that's required of greatness. Yes. Yes. It's, it, you know, you, you got to go through those manic moments. And, you know, mine was, I, I truly believe this about myself. I'm motivated by pain. When I go through hardships in life, it just motivates me like nothing else can and that nothing else has proven to do. Oh, my God. Listen, that's the whole point of this podcast. If nobody don't take nothing else away, I could have made that quote my intro. (laughs) (laughs) And it's not that I'm telling people like your, you know, your most painful moment should be, you know, is what should be what motivates you. But what I am saying is that embrace the painful moments because that's to me that's god telling you you're not meant to be average yes yes without a doubt that and that's something that i just can't settle with i I live by the phrase to be good to be good is mediocre to be great is complacent but to be unforgettable that'll get you in the history books forever i'm chasing i'm chasing unforgettability this book is unforgettable. I need people to read it. That's for sure. And I'm, I'm going to get into, I'm going to get into where people can find it. But I have to I have two last things. One, I ask everyone this because I, I've, I've heard about it and I read about it and I'm so stuck on it. But we, people like you and I, we set these phenomenal goals with tons of intent to achieve them. Like we can't even fathom not achieving them. But I, I read, I've been reading about this, understanding what millennials, we set these phenomenal goals and then we achieve them and then we become depressed afterwards because we were chasing a feeling and not a goal. Mm-hmm. It's a high, it's a drug. Right. So after you beat this manic phase and you write the book and it becomes published did you feel this overwhelming peace, like you'd done what you had come here to do? Or did you feel the feeling you wanted to feel? Was there any sadness afterwards or was there just like a what's the next goal? Um, I was looking forward to what's next. And two, I didn't know what to do with my time now. Because, again, this was distracting me from the pain that I was going through. And then writing this book forced me to relive a lot of pain. So now I have nothing but time. There is no release. There is no more outlet. Oh, my gosh. So you got to find so, a new one. Exactly. I have to sit with this stuff and come to terms with it. And like I said, just because the book is done doesn't mean a lot of these situations have reached a place of closure. Right. It's continuous growth. Exactly. Always. Always. Well, I have to end with one quote. And even though it sounds like it's discussing relationships, which you, you very much have, have, uh, could have been talking about this actually made me think about something else. And I want to read this. You said, when you hurt someone you love, you end up truly hurting yourself worse in the end. And when I read that, all I could think about was you going to jail and how in the essence of trying to protect your mother, you hurt her. Mm-hmm. And that's so easy to not understand when people hurt someone. 
that you will end up hurting yourself worse in the end. And it's Mm -hmm. not necessarily even the pain that you feel like, oh, I hurt that person because that could be prolonged. You know, like you said, you broke up with a girl and eight months later, you were like, ouch, this, this was a mistake. This hurts. I'm, I'm hurting, you know? (laughs) Right. (laughs) But, um, that's in all of our relationships, you know? Mm -hmm. And because it's, it's, it's it's a sense of guilt that you're carrying. And with that guilt, you're seeking forgiveness from them. When in essence, you got to forgive yourself. It's it's a combination of both, really. And I love that you said forgiving yourself because it's it's um they always say you have to understand that when someone hurts you, even if they apologize, it may never resolve anything for you. the The closure is not with the person being apologetic. The closure is with you forgiving yourself. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, here's the good news. If you're listening to this podcast, um, we are going, this, this book is so amazing that, uh, we're going to do, this is part one of part two. We're going to do a, a part two to my own worst enemy to discuss the rest of Ishmael's book, because it is something that you don't want to miss. Um, we're damn near doing a book report for you. So, <laughs> but, so um, go get it. <laughs> so go get it because we're, uh, we're not even covering the surface of how amazing this story is. So Ishmael, please tell everyone where they can get this book and where they can find you on social media and learn more about you. The book is available on Amazon. It's also available at IshmaelBrown.com. That's I-S-M-A-E-L Brown.com. And you can find me on Instagram at Ishmael underscore Brown. That's I-S-M-A-E-L underscore Brown. Uh, follow me. There's also a link in my bio that will direct you to where you can purchase the book. Um, I can't wait for part two because there are some things that you're about to discover about me and essence of relationships with women. Really going to blow your mind. <laughs> Which I'm sure my audience desperately needs to hear because... What I found so riveting about this book was that your life is comparable to so many people. And that's why I was so glad you shared it. So thank you so much for being your most vulnerable self. And I cannot wait until part two. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity. Looking forward to it. Thanks again for joining us on another episode of The Stranded Podcast. If you felt inspired or moved today, make sure to leave a review on iTunes. You can learn more about us and our guests at thestrandedphase.com. And don't forget that your stranded phase is a rite of passage on your journey to greatness.